In times like these, being a citizen is a big job. Thank you for joining us to celebrate the virtues of self-rule and debate the state of our republic. Welcome to the behind-the-scenes episode of the Citizen's Prerogative Podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Michael Piscatelli, and I'm joined by my illustrious co-host, Raymond Wong Jr. We'll get to hear from him in a bit, but before that, a warning. We feel the need to provide a peek behind the scenes to add another flavor of our perspective. The subject matter from behind the scenes will be more raw and off the cuff and potentially offensive, but we have done our best to mask the worst expletives. Finally, before we begin, a couple of listener notes to address some questions off the bat. Behind the scenes is a side effect of our process. Ray and I record our episodes essentially in one take, with perhaps a few bullets to keep us on track. Prior to each episode, though, we catch up. We talk personal, business, and everything in between, including bathroom life. We spare you those details. I digress. The episode that you're about to hear is cut from the prep time I just described, which is usually completely off the record. At least it had been until now. We are now live. I touched it. (laughs) The the button. And it's counting. This is 10.06 a.m. 3.21.2021. This is behind-the-scenes content with... Citizens' prerogative. You know what? I heard that we might be on the same time zone going forward. Have you heard that rumor? Like uh, they're <laughs> going to keep it? Oh, who? Who's going to keep I, it? The, 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 I suppose the time people. Like who's in charge? I never knew. Is there like an office in Washington where they like just have clocks? And they're just like, well, you know, should we, should we do it? Should we not? Like what do they do? Maybe that's the only business they discuss. It's interesting because daylight savings is implemented state by state, I think. True, right? That's why Arizona's Arizona accepts itself out as well as a few other states. They just don't participate. So really the federal government stops recognizing it, right? Because isn't that the big mm -hmm. one? Like if all the federal offices stopped switching, that would be big, right? That means all of the, you know, technically or something like that. In today's world, anything the federal government does, a hand number of states will do the opposite for the sake of it. (laughs) So I think if we have any good chance of having daylight savings be retired, that we make it a state initiative against the federal government, and then all the states will participate. (laughs) Oh, I like that. I really like that. And only one minute, 30 seconds in, and you are hot. (laughs) Solutions abound. Local is everything in our system. (laughs) Well, you're right. And actually, I think Arizona and even California have some of the best local control statues um, out there. I think we can get a lot done. As a matter um, of there's fact, just a lot of people in California. It's very, it's very hard to get that many people to sign. A lot of people, a lot of opinions, although they're getting behind a recall effort. So we'll see. How do you feel about recall? I mean, we're not on the show, right? But like, do you, mm-hmm. do you, you're a Californian. Do you, do you have an opinion you want to share? I mean, for me, recall is kind of in the same bucket as propositions, and I think it's a double-edged sword. Um, <laughs> it's it's like a real it's like impeachment light. I mean, it's impeachment 
pure, I, I suppose, because you don't have to do it twice. <laughs> you do it once and then you have a snap election. It's very parliamentary. Um, and I think there's an argument to be made either way. I, I kind of I dislike things like that because I feel like in the middle of a time where things should be focused on policy and legislation, now we're going back into a campaign season. So if I felt confident we did campaigns efficiently and it was like, yes, this is an atrocious governor and we're only executing it because <clears throat> he's putting people in camps, you know, I think I think maybe the bar is a little too low. Signatures on a petition is a low bar <laughs> to initiate a recall, in my opinion. <laughs> um, so but I, I I'm not cold on the mechanism. I'm just cold on the execution. So same thing with ballot propositions. I mean, after having seen what happened with Prop 8, again, a double-edged sword. Maybe gay marriage came about more quickly as a result of backlash to Prop 8. I don't know. You don't know, right? I think um, we talk about the pendulum a lot, right? Like it tends to be, you kind of need the momentum. I hate to say it, but George Floyd, you need you need this huge swing before it's like like literally people are begging you to get off his neck like fellow citizens are saying please help look at him oh my god like that's pretty far swing i think the next big thing is we push the cop off of him right which which we started doing during the riots so we're there yeah definitely so yeah i mean i can't i guess that's what makes me destined to be a politician um the fact that i will say yes and no <laughs> <laughs> and I'll explain why, because, yeah, I, I think it's important because I don't I do believe in democracy. And I think it's a very democratic thing to have people be able to recall a leader when they've gone rogue. Um, but I don't think anything Newsom has done necessarily raises the bar to impeachment because that's basically what it is. It's not impeachment with never able to serve, but you're going to be removed and replaced. I mean and because we have to ask the tough questions here, Michael, Mr. Michael Piscatelli, will you vote to recall the governor? No. No. Thank you for sharing your truth with us. We love you. <laughs> and so, the, and we're only five minutes in. So the, well, now I've got the timer going, I'm going to talk about it the entire episode. No. <laughs> um, this is the newest innovation. A year in, and we introduced timers. <laughs> Episode twenty timers. <laughs> yeah, like well, you know, we thought if we didn't do it at twenty, we were never going to do it. So uh, you got to just because you know after twenty-one times, it's a habit, right? You have to do it like twenty. Yeah. So I think I think we may have broken this one just in time. Yeah. Um, but oh, I've been yelling at everyone about the emotional brain and stuff because of you, and mm. I'm like, shut up. Get your lizard brain out of here. <laughs> I've, been very, I've been very aggressive. Like, you've got to stop arm, arming me with knowledge because it's dangerous, but it makes so much sense, the lizard brain. And, um, and even the ways I used to explain my own personality, right? Because like, I couldn't understand why, like, like it, it, you know, it was, um, like, I, I was always drawn to certain body features, right? On men and women, right? Like, just automatically, my eyes sometimes don't even give me a choice. And I do oh. think then that's overcoming that, that, that primal need, right? The animal need is you're always trying to scope out. You're trying to identify food or sex. So that's kind of one of the primary yeah. needs of the, of the, and it's you're, so you're trying to assess sex. You're trying to determine if it's food, you're trying to determine if it's tasty. And, and I think that people get those emotions mixed up and I, it's starting to make more and more sense, right? Like where 
even someone who's going to claim something insane like a sex fetish, right? Well, it makes complete sense to me now. I'm glad I had such a long conversation with you because of course it's sex for them. Their animal brain has minimized that individual to an object of food and sex and, and they're just an object. They mm-hmm. have, it's almost like, I feel like individuals who are saying something like that, they haven't released that individual to their, their, their emotional brain, right? They're keeping it their in that mind. one spot. Yeah. They're right. not using their prefrontal cortex to override their in, you know, their innate drive <laughs> to put it in context, right? Yeah. You are feeling that way. You're drawn in that way. It's funny you bring up sex too, because there's a whole other set of, um, components that come to bear on it especially when you look at differences in behavior between men and women um, because men are from what we understand from studying the brain are much more spatially oriented and visually oriented mm-hmm. women are much more intellectually oriented and intellectual being um, they're a little less they're they're a little less sim- stimulated necessarily by what they see they're more so by what they think what they consider about something yeah and I don't remember all of the evolutionary mechanisms that theoretically came to bear on that. All we know just from studying it is that there are prevalent differences in the data. Um, and so you, I, I mean, women are men or what is it? Women, women are for Venus and men are for Mars. Okay. It kind of tries to play into that on the science side to say, well, you know, regardless of from (laughs) behavior is different and it's different in these ways. And that's why guys tend to be, we tend to stare at things or we're much more stimulated by watching something like pornography Mm -hmm. um, than women generally are because women are more interested in um, maybe some of the longer term advantages of coupling and men are more focused on the short term advantages that they can get out of coupling. And and that's, more evolutionary i'm trying to understand a little more where i may have heard this before so is that the similarity they see in the gay males brain where in some in in gay men they show the enlarged uh mechanism like the female like there's a specific portion of the brain um that's larger in the sexual region that has to do with that like you said this and i'm I'm oversimplifying because of simplifying it because i heard it like 20 years ago i think but the study had to do with the gay brain um sometimes will mimic those those um the emotional the more emotional connection um like the female brain has i don't know if that makes sense but um we're still digging into that um especially because Gay is a different level of complex. It's yeah. a level of complexity we haven't really dug on yet, um, scratched the surface because of because it's so much of a scale. Right. And just like sex differentiation in the physical body, you know, the number, <clears throat> the series of events that have to happen with perfection in a female body that's bearing a child, everything that has to happen in the womb for that individual child to come out perfectly differentiated physically anatomically as a male or a woman it's incredibly complex and there's umpteen things that can go not wrong but um not according exactly to yeah yeah exactly according to the cycle and so if anything is a little bit different anywhere in that cycle you get any range of differentiation you know that's not per perfectly identifiable we also hear the uh, like the set like what is it the this idea that the firstborn is always going to have a higher tendency to be heterosexual yeah yeah and that's only one strain 
of study, this is what hinted at the complexity of it. Because first of all, you can only use, that only helps explain the prevalence of gay men and only in families where there was multiple boys, right? And then the eldest is typically straight. And then one, one number of the youngest or many of the youngest are gay. And that's androgen insensitivity syndrome to a certain degree, they call it. So somehow they believe in the womb, the mother's body's immune system or some other yeah. function is, be, is uh, becoming sensitized to that particular chemical in a hormone and it's preventing it from reaching the fetus like it would have in the first child the second child comes and the body's like whoa we recognize these things we don't like them and it reduces the prevalence while the child's in the womb and 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 the absence in percentage wise of that androgen which is the male hormone is where we see gay men come out but it only works for gay men it doesn't explain anything about lesbianism yeah and it only works for gay men in that birth order. So, you know, if someone has only one child and that child is gay, this doesn't explain that necessarily. We don't know what stimulus caused that womb to become desensitized to androgen. But as they look into genetics, maybe we'll find out insensitivity has been passed down somewhere in epigenetics. Right. You know, it's. But again, we don't still don't understand what's happening on the female side of the spectrum. Oh, um, I'm gonna. I don't. I hate to do it, but of course, you know, over here in the Phoenix hub of uh, Citizens Do Good, we are working on the ant study project. So <laughs> we, you know, we've got our we've got our five call. And it's good news. We just expanded one of the colonies. They're getting so big. We Ooh. had to add an extra room. Yeah, this they're organic they're like, growth, they're like Americans. Yeah, all organic growth. Um, and this is seed fairing. But one of the colonies in particular, um, they've been diversifying their. And and you have to understand, they're all clones of the same female queen right these are not these are not new different species that's not how it works right so they're all clones right but what i've noticed is now they're developing unique types of clones so using a combination of heat and different types of food and available resources just like you're saying it's crazy because they cook their youth like we cook them in our bellies right but mm -hmm. they cook their youth on the ground, they have them out there sitting in a pile. And so using different temperature zones and using different feeding and types of foods and concentration of foods and um, all these different variations, they started creating huge, bigger than the queen ants themselves. Wow. And then smaller ones, tiny, tiny ants that are servicing the eggs now. So the colony is becoming so complex and what's blown me away. They're differentiating into new roles. Different. So as you're saying this, you're saying like the, how physically. the body creates the climates. Mm -hmm. They're just doing the same thing physically. They're just moving the eggs around to say, all right, we need this. We need that. We, but they're all clones, but they're all differentiating um, through the, through the, because what they say is you need to understand ants as an organism, not that they are individual, but they're not individuals. They are an organism. So they are operating together and they understand the colony needs and they're creating bigger, stronger ants to fight. That's incredible. I mean, it just, I hate to say, I don't want to, I, but we're all from the same place, right? Like, but it's like, it, yeah. it kind of tells me like, well, they're doing it right there in, my, in, in front of me and I've been watching it. And then you're telling me, well, yeah, the body's going to inhibit all these chemicals. So we're, we're all doing, we're, it's basically the same thing. The, the, the nature's finding a way to manage the soup because out of the soup you get humans and monkeys and ants but it's all the same soup 
Yeah. And then out of our soup, we make various versions of our own. It's crazy. Cause I mean, even children are coded for scarcity and abundance when they're in the womb too. I was talking to Danielle about this because the more we study epigenetics, the more we understand how programmable we are. Um, DNA isn't everything. How DNA is expressed can change from person to person and how DNA is expressed within us during our lifetimes can change. Why fast food's so dangerous. Yeah. You know, more and more you become that. You see like, cause I, I see my family members cause you know, my family, we've got some bulky ones and, and, and you see the ones that really dove into fast food as a primary food source. And then all of a sudden they change their diet. And these people that I thought were just these huge big boned people are suddenly as thin as a rail. And, and you know, and, you know, you just pull back and looking at this and listening to all we're talking about, my, I keep denoting that, yeah, it matters a great deal what you put and where you are and what you do with this body. Like it does, it, it, there's an effect. Yeah. Yeah, we don't exist in isolation. I mean, there's a big debate as to where we even begin or end related to our biomes and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, even the ants, they reject stuff. I've given them some stuff I've given them before and they're like, mm, we've had live worms because I give them dry worm. And, and, but they, but it seems like they look at it and they're like, oh, where's all the again. goo? It's like the dry worm is not as good as live worm apparently. So they're, they're they get picky. Makes sense. They'll store that for winter or something. Hmm. You know, actually this ties to some articles that are popping up all over the internet because of, uh, who knows? Who knows what? But um, male fragility, <laughs> we'll call it. So yeah. I don't know if you've noticed there's this prevalence of articles now focusing on sterility in our general population and the increased prevalence of um, issues in sperm and the ability for men to produce sperm that can actually conceive children. And there's just a marked decline in fertility. Um across the board, um, both women being able to carry a child to term um, and men's ability to actually produce a sperm that can mate with an egg. And uh, that's all environmental because of the environment we've been creating. Um, Do you the think it's the chemicals. energy drinks? It's a whole boatload of chemicals i don't know if you recall because well, they're all competing yeah i mean like bpa was one of the latest and anytime it's one chemical we're wrong because it's a soup of things we've released in the environment and it's from everything we use to produce food but to also package food um and then the containers we eat food out of um right. so for years who knows what styrofoam was doing that's one generation and then we moved on to plastics because theoretically those are recyclable. Come to find out, They're plastics not. release plenty of stuff into food when it's heated. <laughs> Especially with oil when it breaks down and it starts to bubble and, and it starts got to, something to well, combine. We known because like I live in Arizona and when you left plastic out in the sun, it turned to dust. And so there those chemicals are off gassing all the time. Um, and then carpets and paints and I mean, we were, we were laughing. I don't remember what we were watching, but about the Victorians and the lead in their green paints. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, we've been doing the same thing. We just don't know it yet because we don't test chemicals. We just let them be used until we find out, wah, wah, 
oh, oh no. <laughs> something's wrong. Well, it <laughs> turns out that it only caused it in two percent of lab rats, but when it's used everywhere, it becomes a problem. And then we've released it into the environment and it goes into our food and we're eating it again in ways that we didn't anticipate or test or study. Isn't there one company that says their motto is cover the world in paint? Have you seen that? It's one of the major pain brands. I don't know if like Sherwin Williams or something. Yeah. I'm like, ew, what? Not good. good. Yeah. So we're finding it And, and who knows what pharmaceuticals do. I mean, we've been messing around with people's hormones, especially women's hormones ever since birth control. That's the problem, right? Well, so, so I, I did see, I did share a video on Facebook about the, um, about the truth about birth control, which is just like, there's really no good news and reason for birth control. Why? Just so the guy can be lazy or whatever. I don't know what the main concern is there, you know, but well, having your period is really inconvenient. So if I was a woman, I'm sure I would like to have it less often if I could safely. It's it's just not something our society is designed to deal with very well. It's hidden. We've got to do better with like, hey, work from home, all the above. There's There's ways to manage your life now that I think we need to just continue to push forward. Like, don't ever give back what we've got, what we've received so far. I'm really worried that there's a huge push to take back everything and really americans should say no this works just leave me alone mm-hmm. let me have my life let me not have let me have one car or no cars let me make my own choice in life yeah and then do your best to try and put yourself in an environment that isn't going to hopefully cause you to get sick in one way or another it's crazy. It's crazy. So yeah, I've been noticing that. I, I haven't dug into any of the articles on it, but I'm not surprised. Um, I mean, if nothing else, because like, for instance, there most, if many antidepressants have a libido um, suppression effect. And so everybody's pissing out these antidepressants and it's going into the sewers and it doesn't get processed in the plants that's that they're going for the live um they're trying to kill all the living things in that right but these chemicals are inert they're not living and then they get dispersed out into the ocean and they get into our food and back into our supply and then and then the animals like there's a lot of fish and whatnot that are also going sterile as a result of the chemicals we've been flushing so we, these chemicals you can't just create a chemical release it into the environment and think oh yeah it'll just go away or something will take care of it the bi- the biosphere wasn't designed to take care of our waste Dow begs to differ <laughs> you know like so the salt mines are not good enough you can't just store radioactive waste in the open salt mines and that's what we're it's a big problem right like and nobody talks about it nobody talks about the waste and i think that's the big challenge is from now on, and it's been really tough for people because what I'm doing now is I'm I'm continuing the conversation. So when someone says something, it was unfortunate because I was at a friend's house. We'll call her Mandy uh, this on Friday, and and they said something like, "Well, I've never experienced racism. I just never have." And I, I said to this individual, "I said, well, you've experienced other phobias, right?" Oh, yeah. That's that's no, 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 no. It's not different. It's not. It all starts somewhere. 
racism is the gateway drug to homophobia. Mm-hmm. Racism is the gateway drug to all kinds of phobias. I said, don't try to disassociate yourself. So tell me again, have you experienced racism? And, th- and they were kind of like, well, you know, I just, I think for our relationship, we shouldn't really, I said, no, no, no. For our relationship, we are going to have these conversations. I said, I'm sorry. I'm coming at everyone, Mandy. I'm coming at everyone like this um, because this is, this is the future is that we cannot say stupid things like everybody has a chance in America because that's where it ends right and everyone cheers and 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 it's it's an issue in our country right like and you have more people agreeing and and a couple people sitting back and saying it's not that easy but we don't say anything those of us who are polite we just can't be anymore we must say that's great that's that's terrific yes Chinese oppression whatever you know just can you pull the layer back one one layer and say you know and people say, and it's interesting to me, because if you pull back that one layer, you really get a really good, and if they're open to you, that's the key thing. Most people will push back and just be just like, kind of like push you away. But if they are open to learn, they're going to say, they're going to have their ignorant moment and you're yeah. not supposed to push them away. You shouldn't say what's stupid. You're supposed to say, oh, okay, well, let, you know, tell me more about that. Why do you think that way? Yeah. Or, yeah. What's happened or whatever. Or maybe I can throw out some scenarios to yeah. you know, get your opinion. It's been very prevalent with Taiwan, right? Because I'm making that I'm trying to make this move to Taiwan. Yeah. And you really see bias just like tons because, you know, like n- n- people think they know a lot about Asia, but they know a lot about Japan and China <laughs> if they know anything. Right. Right. When you throw a country like Taiwan, do you know how confused people are? Tell me. People tell me I'm going to be killed, that I'm going to be harmed, that I have to be careful. Why? People say I flat out won't like it. Well, they don't know. They say when, because again, that's the thing, right? I say, well, why would you say that? Yeah. What makes you and, think And they that? said, well, isn't it just, isn't it, isn't it that way? You know? And, and I said, I, I said, what do you know about Taiwan? You know, they're, 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 I said, that, what I tell people to try to get them to understand, and I said, they're, they're as industrialized as Switzerland. And, mm. and they say, and then, then you see another side because you know, most people then don't know what Switzerland is. So. I mean, the, the console, I forget the term that they use because it's not, um, it's not, uh, ambassador. That's not the word that, no, they can't, uses. they can't have an ambassador. So there's a different, you know, it's the relationship manager to the United States, basically. Um, this woman from Taiwan, I was watching her talking on uh, Bloomberg. They were interviewing her. And, and it was fascinating to get her perspective because she's, you know, she's talking on behalf of Taiwan on, in regard to the relationship with the United States um, and, and the global economy and everything. Because they're talking about how Taiwan is managing the epidemic, the pandemic um, <clears throat> and all that stuff and and needing to you know, maintain its ties and stability for global economics because, you know, a lot of their stuff is tied into international trade and it was all under the veil or, you know, with, with the elephant in the room being Blinken and everybody having China talks right now, they had been going to Japan and everything, right. To do the, to do the uh, roundabout with all of our partners before we go and have some talks with, with China. So I, I, I thought that was enlightening. And I, and I thought to myself, oh, I wonder how many Americans are aware of this individual, their role. Um, 
I'm I'm heartened that Bloomberg covers the world the way they do, especially from a business perspective. Yeah, that means a lot to me. It gives them the opportunity to go to all kinds of places and have really potentially sensitive conversations, but because it's in the realm of business and in the realm of trade, they're able to negotiate those discussions, right? Actually quite effectively. And it's not a bunch of propaganda. I mean, it's like, we're all trying to make money. <laughs> That's our religion, right? Uh, that, that group, you know, global, global mm-hmm. economists and whatnot. Um, so it's neat for them because they come at it almost objectively, I mean, business obviously is its own religion. Uh, global economics is its own religion. It has its own self-interests. But when you know what the bias is and, and whatnot, it's really neat to see this secular group, theoretically secular, because it's agnostic of all the other politics going on, and they can comment on it because it's either good or bad for business, and people have an opinion. Well, there was a wise drug dealer that once told me, business is business. It is the world around. He he, he had a problem with my homosexuality, like always. You know, we worked together, and then, but he he would just deal with anyone though. Like it didn't matter if they were there. And when I saw him dealing with a a person not like himself, more like me, I said, "Uh, "What's going on?" And he said, "Business is business." And I've carried it with me since then. I hop in the nineties. I've carried that with me. So I tell people business is business, but I'm speaking from a drug dealer standpoint. I don't tell people that, but it, that's where it came from. That's funny. That's so true. Um, I want to just go back really quick to a point you were bringing up earlier because it triggered uh, something I was listening to recently about pluralistic ignorance. Ooh. And... It's a really big word for not a complex idea, but it's a hard idea to think about. It's, um, this is science, you know, sociologists trying to study the effect of, uh, like Jonestown as an extreme example. Okay. Where, and, and this can be applied in any circumstance. It could be drinking on college campuses. But there is a um, prevailing culture. I mean, because this also touches on the emperor has no clothes, that parable um, where the child who had nothing to lose is the one who calls out the emperor, whereas everybody around the emperor was like, yes, you have the best clothes. And <laughs> he's not wearing anything. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. This pluralistic ignorance thing comes into play when a large group, of, when the majority of a group of people believes something but they do not express that or share that among the group and they behave in a way that's opposite or different from the way they believe um so like the majority of people the majority of this particular college class on campus goes out and parties every friday and drinks to the nines and there's a lot of energy around it and just and and discussion and everybody participates and goes all out but when you survey everyone individually about their personal feelings not not what they share with their friends but how they feel about it they're uncomfortable they don't like it um, you know, there's a lot of things about it that they feel is inappropriate, um, but they won't speak up. And this happens 
all the time, everywhere, constantly. It's a function of our psychology where we all know, like a large group of people knows something is right or wrong. Like in Jonestown, the majority of the people at Jonestown actually didn't want to be there at the end. But most of them ended up drinking the Kool-Aid and dying, you know, and, and it, and it's rare. That was one of those rare cases where some people even came in from the outside, like Jackie Spear. And um, I forget who the Senator was at the time that she was with, he died there. Um, she was, you know, wounded uh, by gunshots, but they were able to scratch the surface a little bit. And just a few people broke ranks to give them the indication something isn't right here. Um, but normally, you know, they find this effect pretty much everywhere they study for it um, at scale, you know, or in small groups. And so you've got a lot of people. It's so weird when the majority is uncomfortable or doesn't like something or whatever, but the majority goes along with it. Uh, they call that that pluralistic, <clears throat> whatever I said it was. <laughs> yeah ignorance right yeah yeah i mean that's it's really interesting um and i, I will say where it is uh it is this is behind the scenes content on it's ten thirty-eight. we've been on for 31 minutes so good healthy uh uh starter uh, and i just i just say i just want to say mike that we're you know the development process for our stuff and it's so funny because we talk about stuff we're not even going to talk about that day in our development process but yeah. it's really interesting because this stuff is it's helping me argue better because i'm trying to articulate to people what we're trying to do here especially on the facebook live and such i'm trying to explain why you and i are doing this and i was saying like we're trying to put just content out there we're just trying to be out there maybe a resource maybe that but i think that what we're actually trying to do is like you said we're trying to stand up we're trying to be the one in the room that's finally going to say something, the friend, or maybe you're not ready to say it. Like maybe we're just trying to be a voice. It kind of made more sense to me now. What we're trying to do here is we did it in catechism and we're doing it now. We're the ones that are just willing to kind of stand up and say, hey, wait a minute, th that's not right. And I, I think people are saying it, but we want to try to help organize it. So we're putting we're putting structure behind it with all of our projects with uh you know citizens prerogative and citizen do good and civic sphere all of those projects are mechanisms we're trying to use to organize it everyone feels this frustration and apparently there's a there's that parallel ignorance where people are just kind of like yeah i know it's wrong but that's true because i knew it was wrong the best example of that for myself is as i saw videos constantly of black people being murdered as i saw in all of our comedic you know, comedic relief throughout the ages, it's shown black people being abused by the police. Why, oh, why did I sit there idle for so long and think, oh, this is just a part of it, right? So I knew it was wrong. I knew we had to do better. I knew there was, there was an issue, right? But I was, I was, I, I went along with it. I just, every day I went to work and I pretended that black lives didn't matter, I suppose, right? And even I said disparaging things, maybe about Serge, when, when you first started dating, I was shocked, right? I think I was shocked. And I even had Serge concerned about me as an individual because of the way I spoke. And again, it's that innate bias. And maybe it was my Asian racist bias that's part of just my, my culture, our, our innate bias that's part of all of us and the silly yeah. things we say. Yeah, and the erroneous beliefs, you know, we hold through indoctrination and other other events mm -hmm. 
Um, Because sometimes we take anecdotal uh, experiences and then we paint the world with that. And it's like, no, 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 no. That was a relationship between you and this individual that doesn't try not to paint everybody like that, right? That's tough because we're not programmed that way. We're programmed for survival. And so risks to our survival outweigh rewards every time. We're programmed, hardwired that way. It's protectionism. You know, it's fear of the mm-hmm. not understanding. I try to look back at myself and understand and, you know, and, and even trying to be funny. I know I'm a jokester and a prankster, but those are defense mechanisms. You know, you have to recognize them and yeah. you have to recognize that, that that old saying that there's there's truth in every joke, you know, and, and, and in a sense. And and that's the problem. Like, let's stop joking and let's let's start talking about things. And, and that was, you know, that we have to have bold conversations. And you and I had bold conversations 10 years ago when there were concerns about the way I was positioning things or saying things. And you told me straight out, here's my feedback. And I said, Oh, I should really think about that. And so thankfully, you know, years, years later, when I was actually accused of being racist in, in um, an organizational setting, I was prepared. I was like, I'm absolutely not. And I took myself to HR, right? That individual came at me and I filed the case against myself. I said, Nope. I said, no, I'm not. I said, I've been working on this for years because I live in a group that provides feedback. But that's the problem, I think, Mike, is that you and I feedback each other. We feedback our closest friends. We Mm -hmm. feedback our partners. But I guess we're trying to take a bold step to feedback the people. Yeah. Yeah. See if we can have a a grander effect. Inspire people. Inspire more people, right? Rather than it being our individual one-on-one conversations, if if this can be a conversation that is shared with others and it plants that seed, like you said, it's a long, it was a long road for us to get here. It's going to be a long road to get out. I'm sure we're not 20 talking like this. It is nice to be 40 and talking like this. I will say, because, you know, we were always kind of this way. That's kind of funny. We haven't changed much. I, I would say that like overall, um, out of so many people I've known and, and how we like you and I are people who are like, we kind of stuck to our guns. We were anti-weed until we were 18. You mm-hmm. know, we kind of, we had some clear rules. We weren't big drinkers until mm-hmm. later on. Um, and so I think that it really comes down to just, you know, we were kind of bold back then, but I kind of like where we're going. Like somebody asked me to say something to myself. I, I'm, I'm doing tons of classes as part of work. I'm trying to learn as much as I can from, I mean, these are, premium companies that we get training from i should be able to absorb it and regurgitate it and i am constantly um but it's it's good stuff like what would you tell yourself you know go back you're now 40 right michael you're 41 and you go back 40 40 <laughs> well i just thought because i'm turning 40 this year you're 41 already okay so you go back in time <laughs> you're 40 and by whose calendar sir <laughs> We get to be the same age for several oh. months, just so you know. We have that opportunity every year. Keeps us close enough. Keeps us somewhat connected. Um, that's the stars. Uh, but what was I say? Okay, so what would you tell yourself? You know, what would you tell yourself? Go back and and when you're trying to examine your values, what would you go back and say to yourself? What was the what was something piece of advice you would tell yourself? And, and I thought about it because I've done a lot of bad things. You know, I've done a lot of good things. I've done a lot of things I shouldn't have done. And the one thing I decided to tell myself was, you were right. It's not what you know. It's who you know. I mean, it's not who you know. It's what you know. Keep pushing. So I said, you were right. It's not 
who you know, it's what you know, keep pushing. Because I do believe you can get somewhere by who you know, but I do think it's, it's, it's more fortitude if you, if you back it up with what. And it's been a longer yeah. ro- ro- road for me, a much longer road. Um, and in even some ways, I've given up compensation for the sake of personal development, I feel. Um, and, and companies were able to give me a discount rate because of my lack of the paper, my lack of the degree, whatever, right? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know exactly. But I know the stuff that I'm doing still supersedes a lot of what I see in the higher incomes. Like I sit here perplexed. And, and I think I, my, my opinion is that because so many people came in through the universities and were ported into higher level positions. So you never get any chance to get any grit. So if you're not a strong creative thinker, which is not the strong suit because we've eliminated all arts programs. Mm-hmm. If you're not a strong you know, thinker, um, creative thinker, and all that's left is the, the, frankly, the football and frat mentality, which you were just talking about. That's all that's left of a school. You're not going to be ready. And they're not, they're just highly charged. They're ready to drink. They know how to, they know how to have drinks with their boss, but, and they know how to talk to their boss. They know how to schmooze, but most individuals I've seen are not thinking up anything creative. The people on the ground with no college education and making the, the least in the company are filtering up everything. And, and it happens the whole time, right? Even to the CEO, he's mm-hmm. filtering up to someone at the top, someone up there that's pulling all of our strings. Exactly right. Yeah. And that, and my feedback to that younger person is just keep thinking critically, examine everything critically, question your assumptions. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that I was, you know, ostracized. I'm not thankful for being bullied, but I am somewhat thankful for being ostracized because that forced me down a critical thinking path early, young, at a young age, because I wanted to understand what people were saying about me and and how much truth there was to it was that about them or was it about me and through critical thinking and analysis and and understanding the history of this country and how we've treated different people over time you know it gave me it i grew much much closer to the ideals of the united states more so than closer to americans for sure um I really valued anybody who thought critically and didn't just take their pastor's word for it or their parents' word for it. Like there is no gospel. So that's first and foremost, I think the first step people need to take to alleviate themselves of ignorance because it's quite an oppressive thing being ignorant. And like you said, these people whether they learned how to think critically or not, they reserve that capacity for only when it suits them or when they think it suits them. And that's when it challenges their status quo. Um, you know, so if they get into a situation where an underling is, you know, calling them to task or something and they're in this elevated position for no good reason, <laughs> they have to, you know, they have to muster a defense. And, and if they're lucky, they can use critical thinking at that point, but they probably don't have that practice they don't have that skill quite as developed. So then they probably attack or, or push down or do whatever they have to do to preserve their exaltedness. I'll um, give an example because we, we happen to be here. 
and uh, we'll call him uh, we'll call him uh, Small Lapia. And uh, there was a, there was a leader that mm-hmm. I once questioned um, because I I try to understand everything I do. I try to deeply understand and get engrossed. And I know this is my weakness, and I, it's always been there since the beginning of my career. I knew when I had ruined things at this specific company, I went to the leader and we were implementing a new system. Again, this is when companies were moving from vanilla file folders to like systems. So this was a big deal, right? We were, we were getting rid of paper and all this good stuff. And it was a huge evolution. And while rolling the system out, I was one of the user acceptance folks. And so I was doing all this testing and, and, and a person of an exalted position had this great idea because uh, cases were, were flowing back. They were flowing back into the queue um, and it was like, so when a case flows back to a queue, you're going to be written up. No, no details really needed, right? The bottom line from a systematic standpoint, those that are technical would understand there was no difference in the audit trail, whether the system pushed it back or the user just signed out of the system and kicked it back. So they didn't build the system to tell us whether it was user error or system error. So I said, a policy cannot be set as such. Um, and what I was told is that I am, I am to go back to my desk because I have a place and that's my place Mm. and just go there and sit down and do your job because we know what we're doing up here. (laughs) And it was shocking, you know, and then of course, you know, once they went back and they talked to the people that actually did the work again, it's not the heads, right? That head, that ego went down and talked to the people that are paid more than myself. Oh, you're on mute. And they found out, Oh, it is true. You Sorry. cannot tell the difference. Yeah, I, I hit that button. Okay. <laughs> you, you, uh, you, can t- you can't tell. But the bottom line is that that, that run-in with ego came very early in my career. And that run-in with ego, um, and, and again, that's, that's my ego too. I was not perfect. I was, I was a young foal that needed to be crushed and, and turned into something better. And it was good. That company crushed me a little bit and turned me into something better. But in that sense, I was chastised and sent on my way instead of saying maybe oh let me look at that is it so difficult to possibly look at it Uh, but no chastise and put on my way the problem is is here's my issue michael i didn't stop there that's maybe why you have me on the show um i said (laughs) i said i'm trying to keep you from embarrassing yourself Mm. i'm trying you don't understand how the system language works i do i'm trying to give you a little bit of insight before you create a policy that's going to hurt you so let me let me put a pin in that, um, and then we'll. I think we're gonna we're gonna end the behind the scenes. Um, I don't think I have any final thoughts for that. We covered a lot of ground that I think was really useful. We covered a lot of ground. Um, be critical. Just of yourself. You put, I, I just want to say, like the Asia Asian hate mm. is a real thing. Um, it, it behooves us just to say that that, that we are just outside of that week. And I just want to say that if anything makes it onto as a closing statement is that I spent a lot of time crying um, on Friday and, and, and probably earlier in the week because the Asian community is a community that is highly sexualized and fantasized. And I only know that so deeply because growing up as a gay Asian man, I constantly, constantly had to, you know, people would hear my name or they would know I'm Chinese and there'd be this whole assumption about who or what I was. So most of my life wasn't dating. It was spent negotiating the fact that I wasn't going to meet their Asian sexual stereotype. 
Um, and so I know we, we broached a little bit on the, the, the thing that happened in Georgia and the, this mm -hmm. hate issue. We, we broached on it a little bit, but um, this, is a, this is a greater issue. And, I, and I'm having conversations with everyone in my life. And I'm also asking the Asian community to stand up and to stop falling subject to the stereotype as well, because we, we too are, are, are falling into it in some ways um, by, by perpetuating it, being silent, or even, you know, for myself, I don't allow the, the, the cutesy pictures. Um, things like that are a no-no for me. Um, and, and it's in my family circle. I, I, I challenge my family members when, if that happens, I say, why are you doing that? Is that something you do on the normal? I know straight guys do it because I hang out with a bunch of straight dudes and they're like, yeah, peace. It's kind of a thing, right? But if you're doing it because the can't, what happens to the Asian community when the camera comes out, you know, it, I need to understand it better. And it's something deeper yet that I'm still dealing with as an Asian person myself. I've always been against it, but now I'm staunchly against it because I think it's part of a greater problem with the Asian cutesy issue. Um, and I really want to get to the bottom of it. Um, and the, and it's, it's our problem too. It's the Asian community's problem because in our media, Asian hate is, is very ripe. Like women are subjugated in the art and mm -hmm. in the, 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 the um, media, they're highly subjugated and everyone has appeared in white face. And so we have a problem with you know, black face here. There's a problem in Asia with white face that everyone is shown to be white and beauty. If you're white, you're beautiful. And that's, that's the challenge. And so Asia is going through a huge challenge right now. What we do need help with is people need to reach out to their Asian friends. They're not going to call you. you call them, reach out, say hello, show your support somehow because it's a proud community and they're afraid to admit they need help. And even if they're surprised by what you said, um, maybe later they'll understand because this is not gonna go away. Um, we all need to, I'm saying it now, Black Lives Matter, Stop Asian hate. We are united. We're one people. We are one species. And thank you for that. I, I don't need to necessarily add to that in any way other than to say I, I understand and I also see that um, from my own vantage point. So I, I think it's important for all cultures to critically examine themselves, the, the stories and the, and the beliefs that we tell ourselves and, and then question those. And, you know, it's everything from that automatic negative thought in your own mind as an individual that tells you you're not good enough or you're not going to get it right or, you know, this will never work out for you or something like that, um, to those versions of that that our cultures can put on us or the prevailing environment that we're in this marketing media art environment that you describe as well, where there are things being told about us that we don't have to own. And I see it in every culture, you know, I would say this, except I'm blank. I would do this, except that I'm blank. And, <clears throat> you know, it becomes an, I can't because of my heritage. And I try to question that. I try to remind people, and even when they say things that are maybe self-defeating, um, like, well, why are you saying that? You know, do you, is that something that you actually believe? And they're like, oh, no, actually, that was just, you know, it's one of my automatic thinking because, you know, my culture or whatever. And I was like, okay, do you find yourself believing that often or challenging it often? Because you need to challenge those things that are not beneficial to you. 
and don't accept be you know don't accept those limits that have been placed on you by some prevailing cultural wisdom because it's unwise i it's it's difficult i'm not saying it's easy um it's a practice it's a practice to change your self talk to talk your to not put yourself in that corner and not limit yourself uh for various reasons including that because i i do see that i experience it quite often um with several you know of my asian friends as well where you know it's because i'm asian this that and the other thing and i'm like but you're an, you're an american here so i want you to start figuring out how to own that a little bit more be a little bit bolder you have wants and needs just like everybody else's and you have an equal right to communicate that but it's hard like you said you know it's especially when we have to operate one way at home that doesn't necessarily jive with a, a general quote unquote american way of being which we still haven't achieved and i see it across all cultural lines you know i have to remind people you know some people will be like well you know i'm just i'm just loud because of my culture and i'm like mm, i mean i my family's loud too but i i've had to choose when to and not to be because i i've seen you know how that affects people so i've adjusted my attitudes and behaviors and even the language that i use for my upbringing um to be a much more palatable adult to myself and to those around me we all need to do that a little bit um uh, because how we were raised isn't perfect and your culture isn't perfect you know it's just trying to help you get through this reality um but sometimes we own it far too much and we don't necessarily behave the way we do because of our genetics so especially not because of the color of your skin or the shape of your eyes that's just an outward feature it's a remnant of the race and so is racism yeah they're all all of these things we're dealing with now folks is a remnant of that that primal race right like we've all been civilization is not that developed like we've only got 2021 years under our belt for what's supposed to be the modern age and it's been pretty shitty thus far so i i'm not it's I, i'm i'm not supposed to cuss as much but i i am really passionate about the fact that you know you've got we have got to get it together like we have been primal a lot longer than we have been civilized okay if, if we're, even if we're going off of those of you that are passionate about the current calendar you know it's only been 2021 years in the greater scheme so think about what we really have to go through. We've been savage for ages. You know, even the Bible says it goes back pretty far, the savageness, right? Why do you think we can shake it in a couple of, a couple of decades or a couple of centuries? It doesn't work like that. It takes a long time. Healing takes a long time. And yes, you're all part of it. You don't get to come out of the womb and exonerate yourself from history. You enter history. You don't get to leave it behind. History is the only thing that's going to survive here, not you. So you must be betrothed to it. I, I don't know what else to say. I think that's my last closing thing for the best for this one. 
No, and I love it because it ties into something I was thinking about history. It's like for each and all of us who feel defensive about anything, remember, you don't have to own the sins of your ancestors. You don't have to own them, but you have to acknowledge them. You have to acknowledge the truth, but you don't have to own it. You don't have to feel guilty because of your ancestors, but you have to own the truth about what's happened in the past for us to all move forward together. That's critical. And I see people get confused with that because it's like, as soon as somebody wants to admit genocide or whatever, at some point in the same coin, they flip and they're like defensive because now they feel like somehow that speaks to their character and it doesn't. Like they're like, well, I never owned and I never did and da 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 da. And well, you know what? Nobody said you did. And we're not telling you to pay a higher tax for those reasons. Okay. But you can't deny that those things had happened. We can't deny that our forebearers made mistakes, just like we make mistakes. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong about that. There's something very good about that, cathartic even. And you don't have to own it. You don't, you don't have to wear your ancestors' guilt. Okay. That's weird, but it you people need to figure out how to divorce that. Well, I think I think the media companies are responding pretty well. It's 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 talking about it, right? It's it's saying that depiction or that word, right? I think the problem is growing up, you say, you don't say that. You know, that was the parental, that was the parental go-to. That's not allowed. You're grounded from that, or that's not accepted, or we don't say that thing. But do you ever talk about why? Do you talk about where it comes from? Do you talk about the background or or anything like that? When you're when your child used a racial slur for the first time, what did you tell them? Did you tell them that's a bad word? Or did you say, you know, that's a very old word that has a, a very negative meaning in some ways? You know, America has a very complicated past. You can find that history right and even some movies will help lead your children there some children's movies are now well adept with with engrossing children in in those facts right so i think that for us we are obsessed we're taskmaster obsessed as americans and we want to deal with the matter that's right there lickety split and close it so we can move on with the next big issue which is usually checking our facebook status um, which is the problem so you really need to dig a little deeper maybe use that media device to find a video for your child that can give them a rundown because you're educated you were smart enough as a well-informed parent using the media tools instead of just watching mindless videos you found content that you can use to share with your child later when they ask the tough question. Everybody's so busy posting about, well, my child's not ready for that conversation. We're not going to do that. And this is how I deal with my child. Why don't you just prep and then let us know how it went when they grow up? Really, like, honestly, like, so social media is a, is a great tool, but a dangerous, dangerous tool. And you see that we're on the the wrong side of it right now. So, I mean, I keep going over all these extremes here, but I, I think it we need to teach. That's we can't be too busy when a child asks why. We need to not get annoyed. We need to lean in. If you're getting annoyed, you don't need to have children. Then I think. And I know we all get frustrated, but emotional intelligence, and we all do it at work. And that's the thing that frustrates me is most of us pull it off nine to five all day, but you're telling me when you see your annoying child, you can't give them the same benefit that you give Jim yeah. who drives you crazy nonstop. 
but your child, you don't have the same patience. You've, we've got problems in this country, our priority, and it's just priorities. I don't think that we're all like mental and that kind of thing. I think it's just a lack of prioritization. It is. We're not and that's putting where we're here. We're giving feedback. Such a mess first. We're giving feedback. <laughs> not enough of us have, yeah, are, are actively consciously daily putting on our own oxygen mask because it's a lifelong journey to oh, breathe that's so smart that's the plane analogy like the mm. plane is going down and and you have to save yourself first right you don't you don't put the child's you have to you have to secure your own oxygen and then you can save the child and yeah save yourself mm. everyone breathe that oxygen because otherwise you're 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 you and whoever's dependent on you is probably going to suffer the same fate or similar fate depending on who the inspiring role models are in your child's life. Like, you know, if you're a terrible parent, the best thing for your child is to be exposed to a lot of other individuals who take a likeness to uh, take a liking to them so that they have role models. Right. (laughs) It does (laughs) take a village to raise a child. I I mean, I, I, I thankfully I had a decent neighborhood. Thankfully, I guess it was mostly, it was all white. Now that I think of it, I think there were very few people of color in my neighborhood growing up was mostly white, but they, they took a liking to me and a few people there in particular, you know, one of them very well. She took me under her wing and she mentored me and she developed me into who I am. And although I love my mother to death, my mother's one level answers were not good enough. Cause I would ask her, where does wind come from? And she's like, from there, from the sky. And I'd say, how do you get a car to change lanes? And she'd say, you just turn the wheel like this. <laughs> so that's just, my mom was a wonderful woman and she would answer my questions. <laughs> they don't go so deep. So for like half my childhood, I thought the car knew if you turn the wheel a lot, you're turning, right? But if you turn the wheel just a little bit, the wheels would like turn sideways and move the car sideways. So <laughs> she didn't, I, and I know she probably wasn't thinking that a child wanted to understand forward momentum and all that stuff, but yeah. it's. No, I, and I had the same thing. I mean, I think this is probably an artifact of being, you know, children of the 80s that were born into working class households. I, I was go look it up. That was the answer to all my questions. I don't, I mean, I, I don't want to give you the wrong answer. I don't really know about that. You need to go look it up. You need to learn. You need to figure out how to learn. <laughs> Mine was a combination of that because I think at one point they had rolled out these cars that could parallel park. They had the wheels that dropped from the trunks and move them sideways, right? So I'd already seen those in the media. So between my mom's basic explanation and seeing those cars that used to actually move themselves out sideways, it was a very short-lived. Um, it was like, oh, it's all coming back, all coming back. It was, I was Celine before Celine if she was Celine. <laughs> she's, got, she's got some time on you, but that's fine. It was, but before it was nights of endless pleasure, I, I knew it was all coming back. <laughs> uh, this has all happened before and it will all happen again. History repeats itself. Well, there's only so many variables that are available when we're all stuck to the same green earth. And the problem is, is that I think what we kind of capsulated here, Mike, is that the people that want to change the, the, the game, right? The people that want to create new elements that were never supposed to exist, they need to be heavily engaged right so i'm the human constructs borders racism all of these new things that are added that weren't part of the green earths and you know let's get back to the environment let's get back to the earth basics and realize that chemicals that are created need a thorough thorough examination you know not an experiment on us for the last 30 years 
but an experiment in a lab for the last 30 years, right? So we could have said, oh, did you know it turns into dust and it's going to end up in the Arctic and it's going to end up in our environment? Uh, it's possible. So, um, oh, I think they knew, right? That's what we're finding out. I think they knew. Well, you know, whether they knew before or after, it's always too late because the profit has taken off. So, you know, rather than an ignorance first uh, or, or, you know, ask for forgiveness first policy on the environment, we need to dial it back and, you know, have a do no harm evidentiary, you know, approach like we do for drugs like FDA drugs. But we don't get do no harm like we get to mm. leave that to our children. But I think you yeah. and I and us, we're all stuck in, we're stuck in the rehabilitation yes. period. Like we, we've got to put a little investment back. It sounds like, you know, especially with the release of all these chemicals into the ocean, such and you're like reef bleaching, coral mm -hmm. bleaching. It's a real big issue. And uh, we just got to pull back like, oh, oh gosh, what is it? The um, even sunscreen, you know, it's something that's good for us, but it's being released into the oceans in mass. Right. So like, yeah it can't bear the system can't bear because we were never meant to live in such microcosms or we were all supposed not all you know 500 million of us were supposed to go to one beach you know annually and, and party there it just the environment wasn't designed for it or to operate industry at scale like this with um no critical examination of side effects I mean, we, we scales the issue, right? Like, I think we developed in a microcosm because all these mini democracies and all these mini societies, but now these global companies have done a really good job of making us feel like it's still local, but there's just this big conglomerate that's manipulating us and, and polluting really, you know, it's like Monsanto well, it's is not a household name. It all goes back to marketing because the aim of marketing is to divorce the conscience from right. the cost. Like we talked about in an episode earlier, like the packaged meat, our yeah. butcher theory, right? Like <laughs> yes. remove you from the butcher. You just see, oh, meat. Well, it was born like that. Like as far as I'm concerned, it came out, it came out of the cow just like this and a nice little shrink wrap. Well, how does the cow make the shrimp? Well, read shrink wrap. Don't worry about that, son. Yeah. I mean, That's I told God you to worry about. I growing up, I thought farms were there for the purpose of teaching us how we used to do things. <laughs> You they were museums. They were museums. <laughs> I didn't think farms were operational. I was like, really? We still get milk from cows? <laughs> somehow it just gets to the grocery store all packaged up, huh? Hey, Bill Gates likes you. <laughs> oh, like, gosh. You're not so far off, young Piscatelli. I was yeah, a child of industrialization. All right. With that... I'm going to go ahead and cut the recording. For more information on this and other episodes, head over to citizendogood.com and click on podcast. While you're there, register to log in and leave a comment. We'd love to hear from the community. We've been your hosts. Thank you to Mr. Raymond Wong Jr. And thank you, Mr. Piscatelli. It's truly been enlightening. It's been something, that's for sure. And special thanks to you, our listeners. We save the best for last. You are the best and have been for years. Thank you for your support. We know it's painful and we love you. Intro music sampled from OK Class by Ozzy Jocks under a Creative Commons license through freemusicarchive.org. Other music provided royalty-free through Fizzling Studios, Inc.